following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. We're going to read Mark chapter 9, verses 38 to 50, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer. So if you will, please look at verse 38. Mark writes that John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray. And Jesus, we just come again this morning and ask for your help to rightly understand and rightly apply your word to, to be humble, to be open before you. Father, we are constantly reminded of our inability to understand this world and your word even rightly apart from you. And so we need your spirit to, to open our eyes and open our hearts to see. I pray that would be this morning. Please help me as I preach just to be able to speak clearly. Just pray even for my cough that it will stay at bay for the next few minutes, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As soon as I mention cough, people start coughing. It's a psychological thing, which is actually fitting, right? Because we're going to do a little psychological experiment of sorts this morning. Here, I'm going to show you a picture, and there is uh, absolutely nothing funny about the picture itself. just want you to look at it for a moment. I'd like for you not as much as possible to focus on the words, but really focus on the illustration of what's going on here in the picture. As you can see, there's a, uh, a stick adult and a stick baby, I guess is how we should rightly refer to these two individuals. And take a moment to look at it. And I want to ask you two questions, and don't answer them until I ask you to do so. Number one, is the stick adult in this picture a man or a woman? Now, let's find out the answer. How many of you picture the stick adult here as being a man? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you picture it as being a woman? Wow, I'm a little surprised. Some of you are like, I'm a realist, and I don't see it either way. (laughs) I'm just, yeah, yeah. You know there's always a few of those in a crowd on a question such as that. All right. I was just curious how you would see it. Uh, question number two, don't answer this one out loud yet. I'll get one person maybe to give us a representative answer. What is the stick person getting ready to do to the stick baby? Someone say it. Pick him up. Okay, pick him up, change the diaper. You're going to help the baby. What did someone say? Choke him. Hold that thought. (laughs) 
Because I'm going to show you a second picture now. Um, I don't remember exactly where I took this picture. I think it was either at the Cracker Barrel on Linhaven Parkway or at this Home Depot over here. Why I'm taking pictures in bathrooms <laughs> is perhaps a larger psychological question that we should be addressing. But when I saw this, saw this, I had to take it. Here it is, right here. Now, okay, hold on. Fo follow, follow. Let's ask the same two questions again and see if anything has changed in your understanding. Question number one, do you picture the stick adult here as a man or as a woman? How many of you say man? The numbers went up. I don't know, men, what that says about us uh, as a people, as a gender. How many of you picture as a woman still or now? Seth. Seth and like two others. Okay. Kathy and Mary. All right. You guys are all, something's wrong with you. Uh, now, number two, what is the stick adult about to do to the stick baby? Definitely something bad, right? Okay. Uh, what changed in these two? I mean, in the first picture here, it, it's the same, same image. And this is from the company website. I, had, I couldn't find a real one. I actually thought about going around town, going into bathroom after bathroom, looking for this, and I was like, that would have been a complete waste of time, and I could just Google it. So I went to the Bradley website, got this one. Even though I told you not to focus on the words up front, you, you did. You just did it naturally without even thinking. You looked at the details, and therefore you sort of interpreted and applied uh, the image or what's going on in that little illustration in a particular way. However, when I showed you the second picture, you know, someone thought it'd be funny, and they were, by scratching off the sea, it changed our changing station into a hanging station. And now, even though it was just one letter, just one small detail, it completely changed the way that you view the same picture, okay? This is a good reminder or illustration of how important details are. Uh, even sometimes very small details in terms of our understanding or interpretation of the things around us. And I've been reminded of that here in Mark this week. As I've explained in the past, when I am studying through a passage of scripture, <clears throat> excuse me, I begin by doing like a, I call it a 10,000 foot flyby, okay? It's, it's just a a really high-level, broad overview of a section as a whole, not just an individual passage that we're going to look at on a Sunday, but, but the entire section in which it falls. And when I'm doing that particular kind of, of overview, that high-level general study, I'm, I'm just trying to get my bearings as to what's going on. You know, what's the emphasis of the passage? Uh, what is the theme, the main theme, if there is one going on? What, is the, what are the structural components that you see in the pax, passage? And then based on that, how should I break it up for preaching purposes on a week-by-week -week basis? And generally, once I've done that, I usually feel like I have a pretty good handle, uh, generally, as to what's going on in a passage and kind of know where we're headed and what we're going to be learning in the weeks ahead. And then each week, all I have to do is just simply dig into the individual specific section, you know, the verses that we're at at a given time, and study those in depth. And normally, vast majority of the time, uh, that weekly study falls in line with that initial assessment I did when I, when I did that high-level overview. Okay, that's, that's normally what happens. But every now and then, this is going to shock you, I get it wrong. Okay? If anyone could be shocked that I make a mistake, it's my wife, who I don't think is in here right now. So let's just keep it at that. Okay? She thinks I always get things right. But uh, she's not correct on that. Sometimes uh, things I see in that initial pass prove not to be exactly correct once I get into the specific study. And, and those details, even sometimes when they're small, can have a drastic under, uh, effect on our understanding and uh, application and interpretation of a passage. So 
So last week, I told you that, you know, we're here in the second failure cycle after Jesus' second foretelling of his death and after the second failure on the part of the disciples to rightly understand and apply that, that Jesus begins to teach them what life in God's kingdom is really going to be like. And then Mark uses five scenes to play that out for us. And in these five scenes, we're going to see Jesus identifying with and showing favor to individuals or groups of people that in that culture you wouldn't have expected Jesus to identify with. Okay? They were like the, the, the losing team in the, view, in the mind of the culture around them, and Jesus, he connects with them and identifies with them. And then, contra that, he doesn't show favor to someone that you would expect him to show favor to in this culture that they're a part of. In other words, what you're seeing is the working out of that teaching that Jesus gave instantly after the second failure that the great ones in his kingdom will be the least in the eyes of the world, and that the people who are the least in the eyes of the world will generally be great uh, in the kingdom of God, right? All of that was correct. The thing I got wrong there, though, was in the number of scenes. It's not five scenes that Mark is presenting to us. It's actually four. And the reason for that is because the verses that we read today, which you noticed included the verses we looked at last Sunday, are all actually one scene. I didn't see that in my initial pass. In my initial pass through, I thought that these were two different scenes, and so I was trying to treat them separately. But when I went back into it this week, <coughs> excuse me, when I went back into it this week, I realized that, that they, they're just one scene. And it took me until Thursday afternoon almost to figure that out. I mean, if you'd have been in my office on Tuesday afternoon, you would have seen me sitting at my desk. Jamie walked in and saw this. I'm just looking at my computer. I had my uh, software up, my Bible software that I use, and I had commentaries on the desk, and I was just staring. Just staring, because I was confused. I was confused Tuesday. I was confused all day Wednesday. Uh, I was confused into Thursday morning. It was kind of like um, that time, and I, I know I've shared this story before, so forgive me for repeating myself, uh, that time that Jamie and I accidentally checked out only the second VHS, remember VHS? Only the second VHS of Fiddler on the Roof at the Chesapeake Public Library. You know, it was a two VHS set because it didn't all fit on one tape. And we didn't know that. In fact, I would swear to this day that a magic elf appeared in our apartment and wrote part two on the tape because we didn't see it when we checked it out. So we go home and we put in part two and we started watching it. And we're like, we're so confused. What's going on? We watched the whole second half of the movie, and we're like, it gets done, and we're like, it was good, I guess, but we were lost, and we pulled it out, and we're like, oh, part two, that magic elf showed up, right? It was, it, was kind of, it was kind of like that. That was the feeling I had this week, and finally, late Thursday morning, kind of early afternoon, it hit me. The reason that the passage we were, I was looking at, verses 42 to 50, the reason they weren't, they weren't working, they weren't fitting, was because it was like watching just the second half of a movie. I had divided it out from the, the first part of the story in verses uh, uh, 38 to 41, and because of that, I couldn't make it all come together, and when I realized that they, they actually made a, a whole scene, everything began to fit. In fact, I'll be honest with you, Thursday morning, Jamie and I were talking, and I was so like frustrated by this point that I, I was telling her what was going on and how I couldn't make sense of it, and I said, I think I'm going to have to stand up there on Sunday. And I'm going to have to preach the part I get. And then I'm going to have to say, now, as for the rest of this, I don't know what it means. I was, I was contemplating doing that because I was just like, I'm baffled. 
uh, that's how confused I was. But, but when I realized it went together, wow, amazingly, everything clicked. And so, surprise, this just became part two of a two-part sermon uh, on the passage that we read this morning. I'm sorry about that. Let's just refresh our minds <coughs> excuse me, quickly on what we looked at last Sunday so that we can pick up here in verse 42 today. As I mentioned a few moments ago, this second failure cycle that we're in right now is, is focused on helping the disciples understand what greatness in the kingdom of God really looks like. Greatness, Jesus said, if you look back at verse 35, is achieved not through being the, at the top of the pyramid, not by being the, the, the highest guy on the totem pole. Greatness is actually achieved through leastness. He said there that whoever would be first must be last of all and servant of all. Not only that, but he makes the point in verse 37 that the, his kingdom is actually going to be populated by a lot of people who are also least as well. Okay, These, The least around them. And he illustrates for them by, by taking this child and setting him in the midst of the disciples, verse 37 says. And he, he says to them that whoever would receive one such child in my name receives me, and not just me, but but the one who sent me, and I emphasized then, and I remind you now, that it wasn't about children. The child was merely an example of all those who, like children in that culture, were nothings. They were undervalued, they were unimportant, helpless, no rights, no voice, nothing. Children were the lowest of the low. And Jesus wants the disciples to welcome all such people, all the lowest of the low, regardless of of what happened, regardless of how they're viewed by the world. But as we saw last Sunday, the disciples weren't quite there yet. Mark told us a story of an incident that occurred between the disciples and some unnamed exorcist. This is what we looked at last week. In verse 38, John says to Jesus that they saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. And I pointed out the irony of that situation or scenario last week, because just prior to this, the disciples themselves had attempted to cast out a demon and had been unsuccessful and now they got this guy who is able to do it and they're trying to stop him okay we can't do it and but you can we're going to try to stop you it doesn't make any sense and we really don't know much about this guy we know that he was successful as an exorcist and we know that he was a follower of jesus because he did this in jesus's name which in that context means he had identified with jesus he had taken up the banner of what it means to, to, to identify with and proclaim the same things that Jesus is proclaiming. But, but while he may be a follower of Jesus, the disciples try to stop him because he is not a follower of who? <laughs> of us, they say. That he's a, he's, the problem in their minds is that this guy, he's not a part of the recognized group. You remember all this? And Jesus says then in the next verse, don't stop him. He, he chides them. What are you doing this for? Don't stop them. And, and, and then he begins to give them some reasons of why he doesn't want them to stop uh, this guy. And I'm not going to look at the first two here in verses 39 to 40. I just want to look at the last one in verse 41. Because this was the one I called the service slash reward reason. Remember that? Uh he says here, the reason is, for whoever gives you a cup of cold water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. And looking back on this now, I realize that that statement should have probably triggered a question in my mind that didn't trigger last week. You see, often, in fact, probably, I'm taking a guess, I had no way of check this, no way to check this, probably most of the time, I think, the concept of, of reward is often counterbalanced with 
a warning of punishment. The idea of blessing in the scriptures is often counterbalanced with the idea of cursing. And so you'll see examples where, where Jesus, God, somebody will be talking and says, listen, if you do these things over here, there will be blessings. And if you do these things over here, though, there will be curses. Uh, Jesus himself gives an example of this in Matthew 25, kind of in a roundabout way, just the counterbalance idea, when he's talking about the end of the world and he's envisioning the time when the people of earth will stand before him. His, and he'll say to some, enter into my rest because I was sick and you, you came to me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was hungry and you fed me. And they'll say, when did we do that? Well, as much as you did it to the least of these, amazingly, there's that idea of the least again, you did it to me. And then he goes to the other side, and what does he do there? You're, you're going to hell, unfortunately, because when I was sick, you didn't come heal me. When I was hungry, you didn't come feed me. When I was thirsty, you didn't give me. When did we not do this? Well, in the sense that you didn't do it to the least of these, you, you didn't do it to me. This idea of counterbalance is very, very common in the New Testament, very common in the scriptures. And here in this verse, verse 41, we see Jesus giving the concept of blessing and reward for service. So now let's ask the question that I didn't ask last week. Is there any counterbalancing statement to this statement anywhere here around us? And yes, there is. It's in verse 42. Verse 42 is the counterbalance to the statement in verse 41. Jesus goes on to say here, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. I would say that constitutes a counterbalancing statement to the reward comment in verse 41, wouldn't you? Uh, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty big. And, and let's just focus on two words here in this statement because I think they will give us not only a good sense of what's going on, but an understanding then of how to move forward in the text. First, let's focus on the word little. What does Jesus mean here when he refers to these little ones? And I want you to understand that there are two options here in the text, and it's the same two options we would have just purely in English. Here in English, the English language, we use the word little in these same kinds of ways, and so we need to think about them in these same kinds of, way, same kinds of ways. Option one is that he's using the word little here to refer to size, to, to something I can pull out a tape measure and and measure, right? So we use the word little uh, this way all the time. You see a baby, he's a newborn, you're like, oh, he's so little. He's so small in size, right? He's so, you know, a little peanut. He's so, wow, so cute. Uh, this is the word, or, you know, talk about children, like my children are still very little. We're talking about their size, their age, their stature, that kind of idea. So if, if this is what Jesus is meaning here, then recognize when he refers to these little ones, he's either talking about children, um, or midgets. I don't know if that's an option, but, or little people, I guess I should call them. They would literally be little ones. Uh, if, if he's using it in that sense of, of size, of measurement, then he's got to be talking about, about children. Option two is that he's using it to refer to importance or significance. Importance or significance. And we use it this way as well. If I tell you that today, and I did not do this for this purpose, that I'm feeling a little little sick. Are you going to pull out your tape measure to find out how sick I am? Oh, he's like three inches sick. He's six, eight, ten. You know, like, no, you recognize that in that sense, in that context, the word little here doesn't refer to size. 
it refers to significance. It refers to importance. He's not significantly sick. He has a cough. You know, it's not like he's got a, a bleeding flesh wound. He's just got a little cough. This, that's it. It's not, it's not a big deal. Or if I say to you that we had a little disagreement, you, again, you're not trying to measure it. I'm simply indicating that the disagreement we had wasn't, wasn't very significant. It was, it was an insignificant thing. So which of these two meanings of the word little is Jesus referring to here? Well, I think he's talking about the second one, the, the issue of significance or importance. And I'll give you three reasons why I think he's doing it that way. First, because this makes perfect sense in the context. Perfect sense. The unnamed exorcist back in verse 36, he was little in the disciples' minds. He was unimportant. He was insignificant. They are the significant ones. They're the important ones. They're part of the group. This guy isn't. And so, so it, it, they're trying to prevent him from serving Jesus because he's not one of them. They're, they're devaluing him in that sense. Second, and related to that, because Jesus is clearly referring to someone or someone specifically here uh, in the text, he refers to them as these little ones. He's pointing specifically to somebody, to some group. And I think he's talking not only about the exorcist, but all those who serve him, all, Perhaps even in ways the disciples don't value, such as maybe even those who give out cups of water. You, you see the connections? These are the insignificant ones. And then finally, I think this because it'd be weird for him to bring up children at this point. It just would be. I mean, you say, well, he brought up a child earlier. Yeah, I know he put a child in the midst, but he wasn't doing it to draw attention to children. He's using the child as an illustration of everyone who is devalued and unimportant and insignificant besides he is going to talk about children specifically in chapter 10, verses 13 to 16. So why do it here? Why be redundant uh, when there's no reason to? So, so these little ones are just the insignificant, unimportant people that we've already been talking about. Okay? That, that's the first word you need to understand. The second word is a little more important and a little more involved. And it's the word sin. Okay? Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Some of your translations might have the word stumble instead of the word sin. Both of those words are okay. Um, I don't love either of them, but I don't know a good alternative. Because we don't have an exact replica or, or, or equivalent for this particular word, this particular Greek word. It's the word scandalon. If you care, we get the word scandalized from it. Um, both are okay, but, but neither of them accurately communicate the depth of what is being referred to here. You see, what Jesus is not referring to, I think it's easier to go at it this way, he's not referring to a sin. Okay, do you understand what I just did there? He's not saying that if you cause someone to commit a sin, it, in other words, that I did something that might have caused you to to be angry, to somehow disobey God in some particular situation. The word is bigger than just a sin. The word is used to describe something that puts an impediment in someone's way. It's like they're walking down a path and they're going along in a certain direction and all of a sudden I do something to purposely hinder that. It's big. It's not little. It's a big Thing. I'm going to lead someone into sin, not a sin specifically, but I'm going to take their, their life and their focus and their direction and turn it over to sin that I'm going to somehow attempt to, 
to preventing them from continuing in the path of faith or preventing them from continuing in the process of following Jesus. This is, this is a big thing. Hey, can you think of any recent examples here in Mark where somebody was trying to prevent someone from continuing down a certain path? Oh, wait, maybe it's the disciples who were just trying to stop a guy from following Jesus. He's out, he's, he's casting out demons in Jesus' name, and they're like, stop. And I'm glad that they just tried to stop him. It indicates that they didn't succeed. They were trying to stop him. They were trying to be the impediment themselves. So, so this isn't just a single sin we're talking about here. This is, this is big. Thus, thus, if you understand that, you can now rightly understand the scary warning that Jesus gives them here. He says, if you do this, if you're the person who causes one of these insignificant ones, as you might view them, one of these unimportant ones, to, to fall away who they believe in me, but you're going you're gonna to put a, a, an impediment in their path to stop them from following me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. You're like, what's, what's a millstone? This is a millstone, okay? Now, this is a big one. I don't know if they're all this big, but it's a big one. It was the best for, like, getting our attention. Um, it, it was a very simple and very common instrument in Jesus' day. You attach a donkey or an ox to the, 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 the log coming off the one end. You pour grain inside, and the donkey just walks around. And as he walks around, the stone rolls over, crushes the, the grain, and you get wheat, okay? So Jesus is like, if you, it would be better for you to have that thing put around your neck and be thrown in the sea. I, we lived in Chicago for a bit. We were used to like, people talking about cement shoes, right? Mafia, you're going to give you some cement shoes. This is a stone necklace, all right? So that, that's what, this is what Jesus is, is talking about. And the point is, is that causing someone to stumble in their faith in the way that Jesus is describing here, to prevent them or try to stop them from following Jesus, is really bad. It's really bad, and we shouldn't do that. And Jesus uses a bit of hyperbole. And what is hyperbole, class? It is exaggeration for effect. It's when, when we kind of blow something up to make a point. He uses hyperbole here to drive that point home. We shouldn't do that with others. We shouldn't prevent them from following Jesus. And while we're on that topic, we should really be careful about that for ourselves as well. I mean, this is... This, now, if you understand verse 42 correctly, then you'll understand verses 43 to 47, like that. Because it's really the same topic. Verse 43, verse 45, verse 47 are all basically the same, just with different body parts, really. And verse 43 says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. In 45, it's your foot. In 47, it's your eye. The key here is recognizing that the word sin in all three of these examples, it's the same word. It, it's scandalon. It's, it's this sense that, that Jesus isn't merely discussing our proclivity to commit a sin, but rather the danger we might have of falling into sin and falling off of the path of following, following him. This is not Jesus, and let me make this point very clearly, this is not Jesus prescribing a method for you to fight sins. If you understand that, the, the way I'm, I'm wording this, 
This is not Jesus prescribing a method for you to fight the sins that you struggle with. People have thought that over the years. Origen, one of the church fathers from like thousands of years ago, right? He, he, he took this so literally, and I'm not trying to be funny, I'm just I'm being honest. He castrated himself based on this particular verse in an attempt to fight lust. Well, what's the problem with that, though? Lust didn't reside there, right? I mean, lust wasn't there. He, he, he can do that all day long. It, it wasn't going to help him. You could cut off both your hands, both your feet, gouge out your eyes, cut out your tongue, make yourself deaf. I mean, you can cut out anything and everything you want in life. And when you're lying on your bed as a blind, deaf, mute, quadriplegic, I don't know what would you would be called at that point, right? When you, were, when you were left in that state, you would still struggle with sins. <laughs> there in, your, in the darkness, you... You would still be struggling with sins because the root of sins is not this stuff. It's our heart. Unless you cut that out, you're, you're stuck. Even if you removed all those things, you would still be just as much of a sinner in that state as you would be with all of your parts attached. Jesus isn't talking here about sins. Do you, do you get the point? Am I driving it home well enough? He's not giving you a method to prescribe to, to solve your sins problem. What he's doing here is, again, using hyperbole to emphasize to the disciples and to us how important it is to not allow anything to hinder our walk with him, our following him. You know, on that note, I'll just make a point. Sins um, are going to be reality. <laughs> sins individual sins are going to be reality whether you follow Jesus or not. Okay, you come to Jesus in faith. Are you sinless? No. You continue to struggle, right? But, but I have to keep following. Even in my struggle, I have to keep following. I have to stay on the path. I have to persevere no matter what. But folks, if anything is threatening that, my, my perseverance, I need to abandon it post-haste. Like, Get away from that thing as quickly as po possible. And that this is the right understanding of, of Jesus' words here is confirmed simply by noticing that Jesus himself makes this an eternal life and death issue. Okay, look here in verse 43. I'll go back to it. What is up for grabs in this situation? It's either life or it's hell. Unquenchable fire. So we're talking eternal life or eternal death. In verse 45, again, notice, it's life versus hell. In verse 47, it's the kingdom of God versus hell, okay? I don't know where I'm at here. One more. There we go. Kingdom of God versus hell, where the worm doesn't die, he says, and the fire is not quenched. Uh, pop quiz, has anyone ever gotten into either heaven or hell because of sins? No. It's not as if, like, I committed so many sins that now I have to be put in hell. But if I had committed just a few less, I could have gone to heaven. That eternal destiny, that eternal life or death question isn't based on sins. We know the right answer. It's based on whether or not we've placed our faith in Jesus. Whether or not we've, we've accepted his offer of forgiveness or we haven't. That's all it's about. Individual sins have never once determined whether or not a person experienced eternal life or eternal death. It has always been our faith in Jesus alone. And what Jesus is saying here is that anything 
anything that threatens that faith, anything that threatens that perseverance, that commitment, must be removed, even radically if necessary. Jesus then ends these comments with three statements about salt. And, and funny enough, these are the three statements that were actually causing me the most problems when I was studying this week, where I was just, I, I could make sense of, of everything up to that point, and then I'm like, why is he talking about salt? Like, where did that come from? And these were the verses, if I had to stand up here and say to you I didn't get it, I was going to do it with these. I was going to be like, preach what I just said, and then be like, and the rest of it, let's just pray. All right, so that was, that was going to be my approach. But, but when I finally put it all together, then, then it began to, to, to fit here. The, the key is verse 49. It says, everyone's going to be salted, for everyone will be salted with fire. And I want you to notice the word for. It's not normally a super important word, but it is important nonetheless. Because what it's telling us is that this statement is based off of what came before. So it's directly connected. So what was Jesus just talking about? Well, the importance of persevering in our faith, right? Of not allowing anything to come between that, that pursuit of Jesus, that, that following after him in faith, and nothing can come in the way. We, we don't want to be the cause of someone else's stumbling in this respect, and we certainly don't want to allow anything to cause us to stumble either. So, so this statement is related to those ideas. How? Well, in both the Old and New Testament, the idea of genuineness being shown by fire is a, it's a very common analogy and illustration. So you can have Paul, for example, in 1 Corinthians 3, who talks about one day all of our works will be tested. How will they be tested? Well, they'll be tested by fire. The works that are gold and silver and the precious stuff, that's going to pass through the fire. It'll, it'll be shown to be true. But all the stuff that was wheat and dross, it's going to be burned away and it'll be shown... Fire is a very common image for, for the testing of, of genuineness, the showing of genuineness. And what Jesus is saying here is, in the end, I think that everyone's genuineness will be revealed. Everyone's. Um, everyone's going to be salted with fire. And this salting is going to prove, in the end, who really in and who really wasn't. It's a reminder to us that even our ability to persevere is not our own. That it is based on God's preserving work of us, keeping those of us who are truly his on the way. People can claim to be whatever they want to be on this earth. They can claim to be followers of him. Many will. Jesus even talks about in Matthew 7 how on that day many will stand before him and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these great things for you? And he's going to say, what? Depart from me. I never knew you. Think about how scary those words are. That there will be people, trust me, I don't mean this like in a scare tactic kind of way. I almost hesitate to say it, but there could very well be people in this room who right now we would look around and say, oh yeah, they're clearly believers. And they're going to stand before God one day and he's going to say, I never knew you. But Lord, I recognize who you are. Lord, didn't, didn't we do all this stuff in your name? He's like, depart. I never knew you. Everyone will be salted with fire. All of our genuineness will one day be revealed, some now, some in the end. This leads then to the next statement that salt is good, but if the salt is lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? The point is that, that the kind of salt, which is salt in name only, but isn't really salty, it's worthless. It's the same point. You can call it salt all day long, but if you put it on your fries and your fries still taste like just, you know, potato... 
it was, it was pointless. If it's just tasteless powder, then what have you accomplished? Nothing. Saltless salt has no point. Genuineness matters. Thus then the final statement, have this kind of salt, this kind of genuineness in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Why this final statement? Because, because this takes us back to where this entire story began, right? Where one set of genuine disciples are attempting to stop another genuine disciple from serving Jesus. This is where this all began. If they were all genuine followers of Jesus, then there shouldn't have been any problems, right? There shouldn't have been any jealousy. There shouldn't have been any dispute or discord among them. They should have just been at peace. That's, that's how this should have, have gone. But it didn't. The disciples don't get it yet. This serves then, I guess, as kind of an addendum to where we left off last Sunday, since I'm kind of completing the idea now. You know, last week I emphasized three points at the end, a reminder and two exhortations. Uh, the reminder was that the church of Jesus is much larger than Cornerstone, right? This, our name doesn't matter. We're not the end of everything. Two, that, that we should love all believers with whom we interact because Jesus himself prayed that all of his followers would be one. He wants them to be one. And that three, that we should find our only identity in Jesus, not, not in our labels. Folks, all of that is true, but... <laughs> The difficult part here, I think, comes back to the issue of genuineness. Because all of those things apply to those who are genuinely believers in Jesus. Not everyone who claims to be salt is actually salty. And that reminder and those exhortations apply only to those who are genuine believers in Jesus. And sometimes that's easy to discern, is it not? But sometimes it's not so easy to discern. And so what, what's our responsibility? One, persevere. <laughs> Persevere. Don't let anything come in the way of you following hard after Jesus and you holding fast to him no matter what. No matter what comes, no matter what adversities, what other offers come from this world, you don't let go. You don't give up. You persevere. And if anything does come in the way, cut it off. It would be better to do without it than to let anything pull you away from your security and your safety in Jesus. Persevere. Secondly, then, don't do anything that would be a stumbling block in the path of other genuine believers who are likewise attempting to persevere. Be discerning. Be thinking. Be loving. Caring. Remembering that all of us together are supposed to be at peace with one another, pursuing the same goal and the same end, and that is Jesus. And then, finally, just be discerning. Genuineness matters. Saltiness matters. We may not always be able to tell. We may not always know. And when we don't, I don't know where to err <laughs> on the side of safety or on the side of love, I'll be honest. And probably depends on context. I, but just be aware. Saltiness matters. May God help us do these things. Will you bow your heads in prayer? <coughs> Jesus, we, we come and just ask that you will give us, first and foremost, this desire to persevere, to follow hard, to, to remember that in the end there is nothing more important in our lives than you, so that we are willing to do whatever it takes, to cut out whatever it takes, anything that would draw our hearts and minds away. That you would give us a sensitivity to the believers around us who are also doing the same, and that you would protect us from in any way putting stumbling blocks, impediments in their path of following after you, 
that you would give us discernment, Lord, to recognize that all of these things that we've talked about last week in this, that, that, that saltiness matters, that what we're looking at here are the genuine followers of you, and we, we can't tell. We don't always know, we don't, but we know that one day everyone's genuineness will be shown. There will be some who say, Lord, Lord, and you won't know them. I pray that that would be no one in this room. Please, Jesus, help us. Help us to cling to you and to not let go no matter what. Give us that discernment. Give us that, that love for one another that only your spirit can give so that we can have that salt in ourselves and be at peace, not just with one another in this room, but with all of your followers, wherever they may be. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for making it clear, even if sometimes we, we can't see it all at the moment. We're, we're trying to understand it. We know that you have communicated with us for the purpose of revealing yourself. And so in faith, in that, we, we study and we learn and we strive. Give us that heart we ask in Jesus' name.